Welcome to the Crime Fiction Casebook Podcast, a podcast exploring stories of murder, mystery and suspense. I'm your host, Bridget, and I'm joined today by my co-host, James. Hiya. In the next few episodes, we'll be looking at the works of Agatha Christie, zooming in on one of her novels in each episode. Specifically, we'll be looking at her novels which feature the famous Belgian detective, Achille Poirot. Today, we have a cracking mystery for you, which we'll be discussing over the next two episodes. So without further ado, let's dive into today's story. So our story begins in King's Abbot, a quiet English country village where the world-famous detective Hercule Poirot has recently retired to grow marrows. The peace and quiet of the village is, however, soon broken when Mrs Ferrers, a wealthy widow, is found dead, having taken an overdose of the sleeping drug Veronal. Rumours are soon flying around the village. Did Mrs Ferrers kill herself? And did she perhaps also kill her husband, the mean alcoholic Mr Ashley Ferrers? And is she in a secret love affair with local businessman Roger Ackroyd? The evening of Mrs Ferris's death, Roger Ackroyd holds a dinner at his home, Fernley Park. Guests include his sister-in-law, Mrs Ackroyd, his niece, Flora, his friend, Major Blunt, his secretary, Mr Raymond, and the local village doctor, James Shepherd, who tells the story. After dinner, Roger Ackroyd holds a private meeting with Dr Shepherd and confides in him that he believes that Mrs Ferris was being blackmailed by an unknown person in the village. After arriving back at home, Dr Shepherd soon receives a mysterious phone call, supposedly from Parker, the butler at Fernley Park, alerting him to some terrible news. Roger Ackroyd is dead. He has been murdered, stabbed in the back of the neck in his study. Dr Shepherd quickly rushes back to Fernley Park to investigate, but it isn't long before he is joined by his new friend, Hercule Poirot, who vows to find the killer using the power of the little grey cells. Fantastic. Right, so in case you hadn't guessed it, we're obviously talking about uh, the murder of Roger Ackroyd by Agatha Christie. Uh, Bridget, do you want to fill us in on uh, some of the background to this, uh, this tale? Yeah, I do actually. The Murder of Roger Ackroyd was published in 1926. Um, I believe that it was actually serialised before in little oh, short right. segments yeah. in the magazine articles. Doing a Dickens. Yeah, um, and then it was put together as a book. It's the third Poirot novel um, that Agatha Christie mm-hmm. wrote after The Mysterious Affair at Styles and Murder on the Links. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really considered to be like one of her best works and certainly one of her most influential yeah. works of fiction. Yeah. Um, It's very renowned. In 2013, it was voted by the Crime Writers Association as the best crime novel ever. So a lot of people really love this book. um, And we obviously need to talk about it then. So, yeah. 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 Right. So before we go any further, we're obviously talking about a detective book. And people read detective books wanting to find out what happens. We're going to talk about what happens. And we're going to talk about what happens in any potential adaptations of this book as well. So here's your spoiler alert. Don't listen any further if you don't want to know what happens at the end of uh, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. Because we are going to spoil it right now. Yes. And we are going to tell you who done it. Yeah. I think one of the things that makes it... Which which is the reason why people do think of it as being one of the most influential or important crime novels of all time is the ending... I think it's because the the twist at the end is so unique. The twist is that our narrator, Dr. Shepard, is not as reliable as we might originally think. Dr. Shepard did the crime. He literally done it. Yep. Who done it? Dr. Shepard done it. So it's kind of like a bit of a play with the readers. The whole thing is based around like 
she's really toying with the readers, isn't she? Mm-hmm. She's making you yep. question everything that you read, everything that you believe about what could a detective story be like. Well, absolutely. She's breaking the rules, isn't she? Hello, listeners, and apologies for interrupting. I'm just jumping in to flag up a small mistake which we made when we were recording the podcast. You're about to hear us talking about The Detection Club, a club for mystery writers which proposed certain rules for detective stories. In the discussion, you're about to hear us talking about how Agatha Christie broke the rules of The Detection Club in The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. Although this is sort of true, Agatha Christie wouldn't have been aware of this when she wrote the book, because she actually wrote it several years before The Detection Club was even formed. The Murder of Roger Ackroyd was published in 1926, but The Detection Club wasn't formed until 1930. This is just a misunderstanding on our part. Also, the club was called the Detection Club, not the Detective Club, which is what we call it throughout this discussion. Sorry about that. Thanks for bearing with us, and let's get back to the podcast. Yes, I mean, famously, she's actually literally breaking the rules of the Detective Club. I was insinuating. Yeah, so obviously the Detective Club had all of these rules. There was a Detective Club which had a lot of crime writers in at the time, and um, they had the sets of rules, and it does break one of the key rules, which was that the crime can't be done by anyone who you follow in the narrative, like as in you read their thoughts. It's keeping secrets from the reader. Yeah, exactly. But as we'll sort of go into, it's not really keeping secrets. Yeah, I think that we can talk about the twist a little bit later Mm -hmm. because it's obviously really important. But like, we want to talk about some other things as well. Yeah, we want to have our own take on on various aspects. Yeah, because for like, I don't know about you, James, but like when I read the murder of Roger Ackroyd, the twist wasn't really the thing which I liked the best about the novel. No, I I think I agree with that as well. Yeah. there's much more about it to say. And in a way, I think it's kind of a little sad that that's almost kind of all that gets talked about. Yeah. Should we dive into our own sort of uh, little points of interest? Uh, yeah. Our, our main discussion about this book. Then? Yeah, I think we should do so. I think I'd like to kick off with uh, talking about Poirot. I think that's a great place to start. Yeah. Yeah. So Poirot is obviously... Uh, should we just discuss Poirot as a guy before we talk about Poirot in the book? He's quite a guy. Yeah, he's... Uh, by this point, he's at the end of his career. So he's yeah. had a distinguished career as a world-famous sleuth. Um, he came to Britain at some point in the past as a, uh, as a refugee from Belgium. Mm-hmm. So he's an immigrant. People are always being rude and xenophobic to him. But uh, he overcomes this. He wins round uh, members of Scotland Yard and the police and solves various very famous crimes yeah so, so he, people know him yeah he's a very by this point he's a very big celebrity yeah and he has and a friend, big ego to go with that it absolutely <laughs> does but his friend Hastings has published manuscripts um, which are sort of the earlier books mm. um, that sort of exist within the Poirot universe and you know give um, yes that put his famous deeds to the page one thing I noticed about this book is that Poirot's not actually in it that much, particularly in the first leg. So, uh, as you described, uh, or I can't remember who said, um, <laughs> uh, Dr. Shepard receives this phone call uh, telling him that Roger Ackroyd's been murdered and he goes to investigate. And a lot of the early investigation is done by sort of just Dr. Shepard, isn't it? It's done by Dr. Shepard and uh, the... who? What's the name of the inspector on the scene? Davis? Davis. It's not right That's though. the one. Yeah. That's the one. And he does a bit of the original sleuthing before Poirot even gets involved. In fact, they think Poirot's a hairdresser, don't they? Yeah, for some reason that maybe is more obvious if you were in 1926. Yes. People talk a lot yeah. about how he might be a hairdresser. Yeah, something to do something with to his, do his moustache. moustache. Yeah. yeah, I think the fact that it's very well kept makes him think he's a hairdresser. Yeah, it's just not a bad thing, but it probably is to Poirot who mm-hmm. wants to just be constantly famous. It's yeah. like really important to him. Yeah, he's kind of barely in it. And, well, he didn't sort of become on the scene until, like, I think you said, like, a third of the way yeah. through. We meet him quite early on, don't we? we get, yeah. We get the he pure, do the pure anything, comedy but... scene where oh, he... Oh, yeah. Do you, want, do you want to introduce this scene and sort of give us it's, this summary? Yeah, you sometimes in Agatha Christie's you do get these pure comic scenes. Um, and they usually involve the main characters like Hastings or Poirot or later Mrs. Oliver, where just ridiculous things happen. 
Melbourne. And it's just that Dr. Shepherd is now next door neighbours with Poirot. He hasn't met him yet. Um, the way he meets they him... They think he's got a funny name, don't they? Like I think they just call Mr. him Porrot Mr. Porrot or, or something. something. Um, and they, um, he's just... Dr. Shepherd's just minding his own business in the garden, isn't he? And then suddenly he nearly gets hit over the head by... Uh, a, a flying marrow. <laughs> Poirot just got so angry with the marrows that he decided to just like chuck one over the fence. Yeah, yeah he's, he's frustrated with his new life, isn't he? And he he loses no time in telling Doctor Shepherd this. He, just, he chucks a marrow at him, sticks his head over the wall, says a thousand apologies or something, and then immediately starts talking about the frustrations of retired life. Yeah, I mean, it was really funny the way you described it to me. Yeah, I mean, this it's kind of one of those classic um, conversations that you get in Agatha Christie that goes from zero to 100 miles an hour and then back again several times in quick succession. So he, he, Poirot sticks his head... Well, I mean, let's just think about this from Poirot's point of view. He's, he's had a cup of tea or whatever, and he's like, oh, I'm going to go out into the garden to inspect my marrows. He sees them and is so outraged by, um, I guess, their lack of growth that it causes him to literally tear one out of the ground and throw it out the wall. I mean, that's a bit extreme. He then goes into, just like it's described as some sort of a thousand profuse apologies that he launches into a Dr. Shepherd. And then he starts talking about how Dr. Shepherd reminds him of his friend, Captain Hastings, who he just starts talking about as a complete idiot. Yeah, he starts being extremely rude and insulting. He starts slating his friend. Yeah. It's really rude. But also, like, it really perplexed me when I first read it because I, I hated the whole thing of, like, oh, you're exactly like Hastings because yeah. I just thought, like, what? Like, I mean, Hastings is... is, like, like a really posh, like, army officer guy, like, who's really mild-mannered and lovely. And this guy's just, like, some provincial doctor that you've never met before. Yeah, he hasn't like, exchanged two words with him. How can you possibly think that's the same type of person? But also, I mean, I know Poirot sometimes rubs people up the wrong way, but if you want to make new friends, I wouldn't, you know, go up to someone and say, oh, yeah, I've, you know, I had such a wonderful, exciting life and now I've come to retire here. And in my wonderful, exciting life, which I miss, I had a great friend um, who I also miss uh, I miss him because he was really stupid. Um, this is almost verbatim what Poirot says. He was really stupid. He was an idiot. And actually, you remind me of him. I, I don't think that's how, how you convince people <laughs> to like you, is it, really? It's just a very strange conversation, yeah. but it's funny. It is funny. And it's nice. to be fair to Shepard, he does kind of see past this. And I think he's a bit sort of um, taken aback by Poirot, but he doesn't... Well, let's really? just say that Dr. Shepard is somebody who is well-versed in the art of sucking up to people that he thinks is important. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I think he sniffs that Poirot's like a guy to hang around, like this is going to be cool, I'm going to hang around this guy, mm-hmm. and it's going to be mm-hmm. good, because he's yeah. that kind of guy. Yeah. And I think that's why he's such close friends with Roger Ackroyd. Yeah, neat segue there. Yes, Right. The, the main guy of the village. Yeah. So should we talk about um, Dr. Shepard's sort of relationship to Roger Ackroyd? Yes, I think we should. Well, let's actually, let's, let's talk about Roger Ackroyd as a character. Um, Roger Ackroyd is a sort of nouveau riche, Business rash man. businessman. Shepard has, uh, or he tells us that he has a reasonably high opinion of him, but I'm not sure Ackroyd would really fit in that well in, uh, in properly well-to-do society. Yeah. Yeah, he's got his pile in the countryside. He's got his money, but... Um, I don't know, think don't... he'd go down too well in, like, a really rich society. Yeah. Like, he he's found his out, like, little mini-village, and he's definitely he, king of that village. Yeah, he's kind of the definition of a big fish in a small pond, isn't he? So I think what was really nice about the 2000 um, David Suchet TV production, which was quite cool, we talked about... Fer- is it Fernley Park? We talked about Fernley Park, the house, mm-hmm. uh, a little bit earlier, and how I asked James how he imagined it when he was reading it and this is really interesting because we both imagined basically the same thing which was like uh like kind of square like um what would you say like 19th century country country manor house 
smallish, yeah. like mm-hmm. medium-sized manor house. Yeah. With not a full stately home. Yeah, with like a little bit of parkland surrounding it, yeah. and like I thought of like uh, a driveway with like an avenue of trees, like mm. gates, like walls, like a bit of walled garden, like some, and then like the summer house by ne- near the wall, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Um, but what I quite liked about the TV production of this one is that. Um, they totally didn't do that whole country house thing and they made it this um i would say it's an art deco mansion it's actually i looked it up earlier it's not art deco it's modern Mm, which is like the wikipedia entry for modern is like often confused with art deco and modernist (laughs) so like i've never heard of it but it's like a movement of architecture and it's like set in it's like filmed in kits close in somewhere i can't remember in the south of england i can't help you there yeah Sorry. it's like a lovely art modern mansion <laughs> not art deco mansion. Uh, it's just it's worth a look mm-hmm. it's a re- like that that episode of poirot was really filmed in the most extraordinary house yeah and i think that's really cool because it really encapsulates for me the status of roger Ackroyd. like he's brash he's like modern mm-hmm. he's got like a cool house not like yeah, a yeah an old-fashioned it's one house. that sticks out yeah yeah so he's sort of come into the village uh midway through his life having made his fortune hasn't he and he's swaggering about like the lord of the manor yeah and dr shepherd has sort of attached himself to roger Ackroyd. there's you very much get the impression reading this book that dr shepherd knows which side his bread is buttered or maybe potentially could be buttered if he makes friends with the right people yeah he um what i liked about the setting of the novel is that you get this real contrast between the village which is like the domain of dr shepherd and his sister caroline who we'll talk about later who live together Mm -hmm. um which is presented as this very insular kind of inward looking village which is kind of almost like a dead-end place yeah yeah, I don't think it's got... People in the village don't seem to have prospects. Or yeah. Really, it's not, like, tied to sort of city life. Or yeah, it's, like, shut off from everything else. Yeah. And also that contrast with Fernley Park, which is, like, Dr. Shepherd feels trapped in the village, and Fernley Park is where he likes to go. He wants mm-hmm. to be there because he... he aspires to grander things than just King's Abbot. Oh. And he's really into going and hanging out there with the rich people. And I really like that contrast because I actually think it's really clever the way that Agatha Christie does this because it's quite a subtle way of hinting at a motive for murder subtly throughout the narrative because you get this... It is a subtle sense of his dissatisfaction with his life in the village um, and it builds this sense of, like, this is the real reason why he's done this Mm. um, because he aspires to better things. He thinks more of himself than that. Yeah, so I think if I can talk for a moment about sort of the other characters in this book, that sort of dichotomy um, comes together really nicely because you have at sort of the top of the King's Abbot food chain, you have uh, Roger Ackroyd and some time ago you had Mr. Ferrers and they are wealthy men of means. And then sort of in their immediate circle, you have a class of people who are sort of educated and probably upper middle class but they're not necessarily financially independent or they can't break free of, of their particular lives within the village. And in that you have obviously Dr. Shepherd and his sister um, and you have a few other sort of locals who we meet later in the book. But directly attached to Roger Ackroyd, you have his sister-in-law who is financially independent, uh, financially dependent <laughs> on him uh, after her husband has died mm. in the past. You have his niece who see above. You have well, Major Blunt's a sort of visitor in this he's story, a friend, so he's isn't he? he's not he's detached the same. from the house. Yeah, but you also have his adopted son, uh, Ralph Payton, who is the son of his dead wife, mm-hmm. whose name I have forgotten. Uh, he is but not uh, his biological, not son. his biological yeah. son. It's his adopted son. Yeah, it's a but, son. Yeah, yeah, who is also very much financially dependent on um, on Roger Ackroyd. So Roger Ackroyd is dead. Um, the others. Are all they're all people who you would see who would see themselves as having aspirations and ideas about their lives being beyond King's Abbot, but they don't necessarily have the means to achieve it. Yeah, and obviously that's a really strong theme in Agatha Christie of like interwar and post-war 
detective literature often deals with the theme of the kind of upper middle class and upper class people whose lives and their means as you know is being eroded and they're becoming like less financially able than they were or they expect to be they're not able to keep up appearances in the way they want to yeah it creates a lot of envy and desire and greed mm-hmm. yeah right so one of the um one of the main victims of dr shepherd's ire in this book <laughs> is is his sister caroline right no, but, but we like caroline don't we i love caroline so he has this sister who he lives with, an old. She's eight years older. She she's she's quite a bit older than him. Yeah, who he lives with, and he just doesn't like her. Basically, what? has a very low opinion of her, doesn't he? Yeah. You see it through his eyes, but he's got this. He trivialises everything she says. Mm-hmm. He sees her as kind of stupid and. He, yeah, he does. Yeah. So tell us about sort of what Karen does in this novel yeah so caroline is like a village snooper she's like a curtain twitching gossip gossipy busybody supreme and she's got a network of informants yeah she's got this fantastic network of informants that involves kind of everyone's staff yeah all the servants the postman all All this kind of friends yeah it's really clever so she kind of has an insight into what's going on in the village, what's going on in everyone's personal lives. Yeah. She thought she knows everything about everyone else. She often knows about things before Dr. Shepard does. Yeah. He, he sort of thinks that he's discovered something and then he gets home and Caroline's like, oh, have you heard about this? <laughs> yeah, and she seems to know everything about what he's doing as well, doesn't she? She certainly does. Yeah, she She's knows which patients he's seeing. He, he knows what's going on pretty much all the time. Yeah, so it shouldn't really be much of a surprise to anyone that Caroline and Poirot kind of get on like a house on fire, don't they? Yeah, they seem to, although it's kind of, it's hidden there, isn't it? Well, it's not really it does obvious. come as a surprise to Shepard. Yeah. He doesn't like it. Yeah, he and doesn't. He, he, it's like he does his best to write it jealous. out of the book. Yeah, because Caroline gets on well with Poirot because mm-hmm. obviously, mm-hmm. like when I read it, I thought Caroline's acting like a second detective because yeah. she's the one who's going out and finding out things for Poirot and, and sticking her nose in to the whole business. Yeah, I mean, I thought that... Um, uh, so so in this book, we're obviously reading Dr. Shepard's manuscripts and it's presenting his side of the story and he's presenting himself as Poirot's assistant, but it's almost like um, uh, he can't because he, he doesn't lie in it we'll give him that <laughs> so he doesn't completely eliminate uh, moments where he sort of comes back to his house and he finds that Poirot and Caroline have been having breakfast together or something <laughs> like that and that happens a few times that yeah. Poirot and Caroline do spend quite a lot of time together so I think it's almost like she is she's the real assistant to Poirot yeah because um, they've clearly you know been spending this time together um, Shepard is telling us that he's the assistant but uh, is he really yeah, because he doesn't really know what's going on between them. No. So you, you see it from his perspective, but you know they're hanging out mm-hmm. all the time mm-hmm. and that they're doing, like, detecting together. Yeah. So I think, yeah, she's, like, either, like, a second detective or, like, the true assistant to Poirot, which is really I mean, obviously, really cool. it, it's a surprise to him when uh, when Poirot says, you killed Roger Ackroyd. He, he doesn't see it coming, does he? No. Because he, he says at some point towards the end that this manuscript was meant to be a sort of triumphant proving wrong of uh, the, 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 uh, the great detective Hercule Poirot making a mistake for the first time. Yeah. And obviously that doesn't work out so well for him. <laughs> the thing that I thought about Caroline when I read it was that I kept thinking, basically, did Caroline know? And when did she start to suspect or did she suspect? I thought it really implied that she may have guessed or she may have suspected quite a long way through, maybe. Mm-hmm. I think certainly, if she doesn't know that Shepard did it, she suspects. Yeah. I mean, she knows him very well. They live together. She's got a network of informants. She's spending all this time with Poirot. I think it'd be weird if she didn't suspect. Yeah, I think so. That he's the true killer. And there's um, there's quite. It's a, like implied. I yeah, think. there's quite a telling passage where yeah. Poirot is talking about how uh, men with a weakness can be driven to commit murder, and she says, "You've got a weakness, James. I know about it. I'm your sister." Yeah, I think maybe that's her way of telling him yeah, that I, I've guessed. Yeah, I don't think I don't that's... know. And I don't think there's any argument that, like, if she'd known, she would have said anything. Because I think that she's his sister, yeah. and they live together. Like, they're really close. She's known him all his life. I think if she guessed or thought or suspected anything, I think it would be really hard for her to 
come forward with it. So I think it's perfectly plausible that she that she did suspect it. Yeah. I'm not and saying she guessed and knew. I'm just saying that I think she may have sort of guessed it and wondered about it, yeah. for sure. Poirot might even have, in one of their little chats, been saying, look, I think it's your brother, mm. but you shouldn't do anything oh, about yeah? it yet because we need to gather more evidence. Or, yeah, that's or true. And then, I, need, I need to trick him into gathering more evidence against yeah. himself. But if you think about it, like, she knows about all the clocks and stuff. Yeah. She, she knows yeah. where he was on the night. Mm-hmm. She knows all of the stuff he's been up to. Yeah. Like, she must yeah. have thought it. I don't know. Maybe she didn't. But well, that's certainly our it's interpretation, certainly what we it? both thought, isn't it? Yeah. And the other thing is, I wondered as well, when Poirot guessed because when I actually came to think about it I think that he may have known like really really early in the novel Mm. and also perhaps the reason he like worms his way into Dr. Shepard's life is because he's already suspecting him right from like the get-go he thinks it could be Dr. Shepard so I'm going to like make best buddies with him because Mm -hmm. it's not really explained why he tries to cozy up to this doctor for no reason well Flora... so i think that may be why he may have thought ah oh, maybe it's this guy i'm gonna go check him mm-hmm. out yeah. and that explains why he makes such good friends with him yeah. so quickly i mean flora Ackroyd's niece is the one that asks Poirot to get involved but he doesn't need to team up with Shepard yeah. at that point does he? No. he does that out of choice yeah so that sort of implies that he's going to get something out of it yeah i think um also about caroline um yeah. Apparently, she is a like an early prototype for Miss Marple. Oh, right, yeah. So that's really... Mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting because clearly, like, Agatha Christie was, like, playing with the idea that a detective, um, a, a female, older woman mm-hmm. detective living in a village, they would know things about people. And I think that's a really cool idea because it kind of has this, like, sort of, idea that women have different kinds of power from sort of men discreet power yeah they have like covert power mm-hmm. that they they know things people tell them things they observe things and that that can kind of be that knowledge um can kind of be utilized for like solving crimes which i think is a really cool idea yeah. i also really like miss marple obviously as well so. i mean it's particularly handy when all of the men just underestimate you yeah that's the thing because miss marple Apart from part is. of the Part of the thing about Miss Marple is that everyone always suspects she doesn't know anything. Mm -hmm. Everyone always just thinks she's just, oh, it's just that old lady. Like, she can't know anything. And it turns out she's, like, got her head around the whole thing before everyone (laughs) else, which is so cool. So I I really liked Caroline. I I prefer Miss Marple, to be honest, because Caroline's got this kind of really... She's really breathlessly desperate to find it out. Yeah, she's much more intense. She's not like Miss Marple is really, like, cool and collected, Mm -hmm. which I think is really Mm -hmm. cool. But, um, yeah. But it's an interesting one, the fact that clearly Agatha Christie was sort of toying with the idea of Miss Marple really early on. Yeah, yeah. I also wanted to mention the fact that he's a doctor. Yeah, he's uh... (laughs) a... He's a Christie doctor. He's an Agatha Christie doctor. Not that, I mean, like, we, we won't be talking about any other novels at all. Because no. we don't want to spoil anything. But, like, doctors can sometimes in these kind of novels be a little bit shifty. Yeah, and it's there's quite... definitely something um, something about them. Um... Yeah. And I think it's kind of that they're presented as being, like, very uh, on the make. Uh-huh. Like, yeah. they often are, like, middle class people who aspire... They want to be upwardly mobile. Yeah, and being a doctor allows them to do that because it allows them access to people above them in social status, like above them in society. They can they can somehow kind of work their way into their lives as as doctor to a patient. Yeah, and that that enables them to gain kind of wealth and status and power, and it allows them access to people and their secrets and all that kind of thing. All that jazz. Yeah, I find that really interesting that she sometimes characterises them as being quite um, upwardly mobile. And um, I mean, maybe stereotypes about doctors did exist at that time. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's obviously not the same today, but, you know, know, stereotypes are still abound. Yeah. In other ways. Mm. But having said that, let's move on to one of the things that we found a bit odd about this book. No one... In the house, uh, no one apparently other than Poirot, possibly Caroline, suspects Dr. Shepard 
yeah. at all. So I guess we're going to start talking about the twist now and our thoughts on it. Yeah. If you want, so, James. Um, I'd love to. <laughs> so, personally, I don't love this Agatha Christie as much as so many others. Well, we both think it's actually quite eminently guessable. It seemed... Well, I felt it was quite obvious who did it all the way through. And mm-hmm. it wasn't like... It's not like I'm saying, oh, yeah, you'll definitely know. But, like, I... I thought it was Shepard, like, from the first page. Um, just because it's so weird that someone's narrating it that's not Hastings and isn't third person. It just... I'd never experienced who that. Who never meet again. Yeah, who I've never heard of as yeah. a person who's read, like, quite a few Agatha Christie. I've never heard of this person, so I thought, that's instantly weird. I guess if you read it, in 1926 and you'd only there's only two Mm -hmm. Poirots before that so you wouldn't feel like that um but like sorry if I can just jump mm. in also if you'd read it in 1926 and you were getting used to the rules of the detective club you'd probably be subscribed to the notion that you trust the narrator the narrator can't have done it yeah I think it's a reasonable rule isn't Mm -hmm. it oh yeah for sure um but it's just the tone of it's really different from other Poirot books because it's narrated by Dr. Shepard and also like something that I didn't quite like about it is that Dr. Shepard is not a very appealing guy. No, he's not. He's quite rude and when you're used to it, like say you're used to reading the Hastings ones. Yeah. Like um, I recently read Lord Edge Red Eyes and Hastings' narrative is just so lovely. It is, yeah. It's so lovely. I mean, he, he goes around falling in love with all the ladies. Yeah, um, he's so cute. Yeah. He's, he's, he's much more charming. He it's occasionally funny. gets rubbed up the wrong way by other um, alpha males, doesn't he? Yeah, but, um, and Poirot rubs him up the oh, way. Oh, absolutely. But who wouldn't get yeah. rubbed up the wrong but way? But Hastings has a much warmer tone, doesn't he? Oh, yeah, he's lovely. And Dr. Shepard is, like, really not lovely. He's extremely nasty about everyone. Well, he's yeah. extremely nasty about the women in particular. Yeah, I thought The men so. he, he seems to suck up to more. Yeah, he's so rude about Caroline. It's horrible. He's also really rude about Mrs. Ackroyd. Yeah, he's really rude. Um, and um, he hates the village. A, he hates everyone. He's he hates his friends that they play mahjong with. <laughs> um, but he basically that that rang alarm bells to me. Fair enough. So I have not read so many Poirot books as you. So I didn't clock the fact that it's significant that there's this new guy. Dutch Shepherd, who you're never going to meet again in other Poirot books. However, I did think, I think as a as a modern detective novel reader, we know now that you can't necessarily trust the narrator. Um, that is something that's come into detective fiction in the last hundred years. So I didn't have that preconception that the narrator can't have done it. Yeah. And I thought when he right from from sort of as soon as the story gets going, when he receives the phone call. I mean, sort of rule one of Agatha Christie novels is don't trust the phone calls and, yeah, unless you can see it. If you can't see awesome. something happening from both sides, you can't trust the other side. So, mm, you know, red flag, yeah. phone call, possibly dodgy. He then goes to the house. Uh, he gets let in by the butler, Parker. Mm-hmm. He doesn't see anyone else in the house. So that's limiting your number of witnesses. He goes straight to the study where he sort of, I think he looks in through the keyhole and on calls for him and... Again, it's still just him and Parker there. And after getting no response from um, from Ackroyd, he kicks the door down and they go in and they're like, oh my God, he's dead. He's been stabbed in the back of the neck with a ceremonial dagger. Um, so there's only two of them there. He then gets rid of Parker. He's like, go away, phone the police, and gets left alone in the crime scene for a good couple of minutes. So, you know, I mean, just warning flags. I mean, you can't trust the people. You can't, you can't trust phone calls. You can't trust the person who discovered the body. And uh, you can't trust people who have access to the crime scene. And then he's the one who does the medical report for the police. So he, he just has so much opportunity to doctor the situation in his favour. For me, it was the meeting with Roger Ackroyd the night before. Well, well actually that night, isn't it? The meeting with Roger Ackroyd for me was when I realised that I thought it was him because, well, before he died because there's this thing that like 
at the very end in the really fun like I love the letter at the end thing like I, I love the um post denouement like confessional letter that some of the criminals might write mm-hmm. in some of them yeah, there's some great ones yeah there's <laughs> some really funny ones and um, this one's a really good one um, but there is a bit in it where he he says like oh there was this time discrepancy and I wrote it in uh, when Roger Ackroyd was right reading the letter and he invited me to his study after, yeah after and I wrote this time discrepancy in like I said 20 minutes like but you can't account for all those because I didn't say what I was doing during them Mm-hmm. And then he leaves the study. Yeah. Um, and in the letter, he's just like, if I'd put like an ellipsis. an ellipsis here, you'd have noticed that. But to me, when I actually read the account of the meeting, I did think that time was really weird. See, I didn't notice that, but yeah, there's another... I thought it was really weird. And all I could think about was like, that's really off, like mm-hmm. that 20 minutes mm-hmm. reading a letter and then I left, like, what what happened during the minutes? Yeah. That, that's what I thought anyway. See, the difference between you and me is that, that that bit passed me by. I got taken in by the lack of the, the ellipsis there. So, you know, well done, Dr. Shepard, you got me. But there is, uh, there's another pointer in there where he's um, he's been left alone by Parker to, uh, Parker goes to find the police, um, and then Parker comes back and they say, right. Um, oh, no, when Parker leaves him alone, he says, oh, I, I went and did what needed to be done. Um, a bit weird. I, the, <laughs> the implication, I guess, is that he's taking his pulse, you know, making yeah. sure that he's actually dead. But so so that there's that. And then when Parker comes back, then he's like, right, Parker, we should shut this until the police get here so we don't disturb the crime scene. Mm. And as he shuts the door himself and as he shuts it, he says something like, oh, I made sure that everything had been done properly. Yeah. Or something. It's like, it's a bit suspicious. Yeah. <laughs> Is that really the sort of thing you'd think to yourself in that situation? Maybe not. I felt like I knew it was going to be him, but through the novel, I also suspected other people and I doubted it. And I was like, maybe I'm wrong. Like, this can't be right. Like, that would be really weird. And like, how is it possible and stuff? Um, and I suspected, like, maybe it was Major Blunt at times. And I also, like, occasionally suspected it might have been Raymond. Major Blunt but is nobody suspiciously else. quiet throughout quite a lot of the book. <laughs> but that's just because he's... Basically because he's quite a boring guy. <laughs> he is. And he's not afraid to say it, is he? Uh, yeah, well, he doesn't say I'm a boring fellow. <laughs> Give us the classic line from Major says, Blunt, Bridget. He says, I'm a rough fellow. Yeah. At one point. I'm a rough fellow. <laughs> which we thought was quite funny. Yeah, all Major Blunt seems to do is wander onto the scene, tell us that he's no good at edi- etiquette, say he's a rough fellow, and then wander off again. But I guess he is kind of suspicious in that he's... he's appropriately he's named, a, isn't he? He certainly is, yeah. Yeah, um, he's a rough, blunt fellow. <laughs> but he is a man of action, so he is the sort of person who I suppose could have... Um, Stab someone in the neck. Yeah, um, the, he however, kind of the, I've recognised this character of like the boring old stolid like uh, army yeah. officer character who often like gets the girl at the end. Yeah, weirdly. Yeah, it's weird, but like the they're usually old presented who's just wants love. <laughs> they're usually presented as like like they're all right, like they're not bad. Yeah, I mean they're yeah. kind of like they're a force for moral good. Yeah, they? they're generally okay. Yeah, they don't considering like the, he spends all his time like shooting animals. Like, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about <laughs> bloody Major Blunt's big game hunting. Yeah, terrible. Yeah, probably more acceptable at the time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, one of the big red flags about the twist for me is that I, I felt it was a bit odd that nobody at all ever suspected Dr. Shepard. Yeah. Like, that that to me was like, this this is not right, it's yeah, got to be him. They surely would, because like, he's the outsider. You'd have thought situation. they would Everyone love to blame is. him, because he's not in the family. Yeah, he's not. He's the only not one even that doesn't live in the house. Yeah. Um, so so we, we, we thought that was a bit but, strange. I don't know what you think, James, about whether you think this whole situation breaks any rules or whether you think it's fair on the reader, because there has been... I mean, whenever anyone talks about the murder of Roger Ackroyd, they talk about, is it fair? Is it fair on the reader? Because back then, people were annoyed by it. There were some people were like, this is not fair on mm-hmm. the reader. And still today, you still get people who've read it who say, it's not fair, it's a cheat. I think, at the time, 
if you accept that there's a set of rules, maybe you've got a case in point here. Although, having said that, the uh, the genre of detective fiction was still in its infancy, so it's like, well, maybe we've just written the rule book, but we have just written the rule book, so I think it's, you should probably, like except there's some scope for this to expand, possibly, but maybe you have an argument. I think if you read Roger Ackroyd in 2021, you should be prepared for the narrator to do it. It's not that unexpected. It's not impossible. We, we know that. Um, what is it? Trust no one. Yeah, Dorothy L. Sayers at the time defended Agatha Christie and said it is the reader's job to suspect everybody. And yeah. I am totally on board with that. Like, oh, yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Wait, yeah. I think it's fair. What Dorothy <laughs> says goes in this house. Yeah, basically. <laughs> so, I'm not so sure that um, you necessarily question that Dr. Shepard uh, did it a huge amount in this book. I think what this book does do very well is narrate some really fun subplots. Yeah, but I should say you found it a little bit suspicious. Well, I did as well. One thing that's quite funny about Dr. Shepard is that later in the novel, quite <laughs> late in the novel, you find out that he has a sideline yeah, as a clock a side tamperer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's about sort of... So they haven't really discovered a huge amount, have they? Or Dr. Shepard thinks they haven't anyway. And then out of nowhere in the book... It's like, oh, and then I had a free afternoon, so I went into my workshop. Did I tell you I have a workshop? Well, I do. I go there and I make little inventions and I tamper with clocks. And it's like, oh. Oh, you tamper yeah, with clocks, that's do a, you? That's a bit incongruous and it certainly doesn't provide you with means to alter time, which has been made a big deal of in this book so far. So, yeah, that was a bit... Um, yeah, a bit, bit of a slap in the face uh, that. Should we talk about, since we're talking about him tempering with clocks, we should probably talk about how he actually does this, right? <laughs> yeah. So, and, like, speaking of cheats and fairness, mm-hmm. like, so, you can explain that. He, as is often the case in Agatha Christie's, I believe, Roger Ackroyd is not murdered exactly when you think he is. So the police construct a timeline that's based partly around um, the testimony of his secretary, Raymond, and a couple of other people, I think. Major Blunt as well. Here's Roger Ackroyd talking at a certain time. No, I found this quite funny. So Raymond is going past... Is it Raymond? I can't remember if it's Raymond or Parker. I think it's Mr. Raymond is walking past the door, Mm -hmm. and he overhears... um, he overhears Roger Ackroyd saying the following thing. The calls on my purse have been so frequent of late that I fear it is impossible to accede to your request. Indeed. Strange thing to say. Mm. So it turns out that this has been coming out of a dictaphone, which has been tinkered with by our moonlight mechanic, Dr. Shepherd. And he's tampered with it so that he can get in, murder Ackroyd, press a button on his tampered with dictaphone so that it starts playing Ackroyd's voice 20 minutes later and gives him time to get out of there. And it goes off again, doesn't and it? Have an it's very clever. Does it go off as well? It goes on and off. Yeah, it's so, a timer. Yeah. Yeah, that's what, that's what he does. So Ackroyd has bought this dictaphone in the past. Weirdly, he buys it in secret. <laughs> I don't. I can't remember if that's yeah. explained. But anyway, he buys a dictaphone in secret. I think he then, is. I think they just say he often does stuff like without telling people or yeah, something like that. Yeah. Okay. So then, once he's done that, he's like, "Oh, actually, this dictaphone's a bit faulty." And when he's saying this, I think Doctor Shepard is—he's just like chilling with Shepard, and he's like, "Did I tell you my dictaphone's a bit dodgy?" And Shepard convinces him to give him the dictaphone. This new thing he's yeah, just this bought, brand this new expensive, expensive tech, piece of kit. Um, and he's like, "Oh, just give it to me. I'll fix it up for you." But instead of fi- well, I suppose he does fix it because it does work. <laughs> so he fixes it, but then he also attaches some sort of timing device so that he can uh, get this. He's got this recording of. Ackroyd talking, he can take it, it fits in a briefcase apparently, so he can take it in with him, he can murder Ackroyd, he can set up the dictaphone so that it's going to play Ackroyd's voice half an hour later or so on, and that gives him time to leave and 
get himself mm. home so that Caroline can see him and he has an alibi for the murder. Yeah, so it's quite clever, but... It's, it's fairly clever. It relies on him, you know, having the skills as a mechanic and... When, yeah, I don't think that would be too difficult, would it, with a clock? I don't know. To set up a know. timer. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> some sort of Wallace and Gromit thing <laughs> where, like, the, the, I don't know, the ding-a-ling bell on the alarm clock prods that. Something like, like there's a prodding that. arm yeah, that, like, presses like that. the button Must on the Must be some mechanical mechanism. <laughs> um, I don't think it, that, that's not the implausible thing about it for me is, like, I mean, you mentioned the... Well, we looked up what, well, I looked up what would a dictaphone have been like at this time in the 20s. And apparently it was like a wax cylinder mm-hmm. uh, device. Yeah. Well, let's just, let's just discuss this for a moment. So we've all watched films or TV shows where someone puts on a gramophone. Mm. And that's like peak hi-fi. Uh, <laughs> so this is as good as it gets. And it sounds tinny. It sounds crackly. It certainly does not sound like, you know, Count Basie's orchestra is in the room with you. This especially is... speech, actually. Yeah. Especially speech. So this is not a gramophone. This is like the equivalent of like saying a voice memo into your phone and then playing it out of that. I mean it even sounds even tinny in current one. technology. So just imagine how like non-real this would have sounded. And yet Major Blunt, who's on the veranda, and Raymond are taken and in by Raymond this. hears it so well that he hears the whole sentence, which yeah. is also really weird and bizarre. Yeah. Like, and he still thinks it's a real guy who's alive. Yeah, speaking. I know. So I think at this point you should probably question the competence of Major Blunt. And Well, I suppose to be fair to Blunt, he is a military man, he's a big game hunter, he does not need to know about such things as dictaphones and normal things. He doesn't know about normal things people say. In fact, he says it himself several times. <laughs> so he thinks that this sentence is normal like yeah. speech that you might say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Raymond, on the other hand, is a secretary. So, you know, he knows Aykroyd quite well and his turn of phrase and has been dictated to by Aykroyd. He should really have worked out that this is not Aykroyd. I never thought about that. So this is, yeah, it's kind of like, I actually thought Raymond was a bit suspicious. There's a sort of early denouement. um, Yeah. Isn't there? Um, And Raymond talks a lot at that. So I, I thought that was a bit sort of suspicious. We like Raymond, though, don't we? I like him because everyone says he's really... He's flash. ...dapper all the time, yeah. which sounds fun. And he does... No he's... one else is flash, are they? So it's a bit fun. No, I mean, everyone else is pretty... Really dreary. Yeah, yeah. But Raymond's good. We like him. And he, he does... Um, he cracks off a fair amount of jokes and stuff. So the thing... The thing going back to the dictaphone, it's not... <laughs> I actually didn't the, think I'm... about the sound quality when I read it. Until you mentioned that, it didn't even cross my mind. Yeah, well, it's in my techie brain. (laughs) (laughs) What I thought was, like, to be honest, like, my feeling about it is, um, and again, this is probably a controversial opinion, but I feel like it feels a little bit of, like, a little bit of a cheat, because I don't like, I just don't like the fact that so much of it hangs on the the creation of this invention mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. messes about with the timeline yeah. because it's not even like it's one invention it's like it's like a a clock dictaphone hybrid and yeah. i just i thought it was too what much what on god's earth is this machine <laughs> well it's I, a good thing they hid it behind that chair yeah yeah i felt like it was for me personally it was a little bit much it was <laughs> talking of um sort of alarm bells early in the book they so at one point uh, we'll probably talk more about this later dr shepherd uh, when he leaves the house after discovering in inverted commas uh, the body of Aykroyd, uh, he meets a stranger <laughs> um, <laughs> and anyway when they talk about him uh, to the police later on they say oh who is this stranger has anyone has, have any strangers been to the house in the last week and raymond at this i assume it's raymond it might be parker um, Raymond pipes up at this point and goes, oh, yeah, 
Addictophone salesman. I mean, it is obvious that Addictophone <laughs> is going to be involved yeah. at some point in this book from then on. You should never it's trust those salespeople. outrageously people. specific yeah. to not be important. And obviously, Dictaphones could be used to construct semi-dodgy alibis. It's just so clear that the Dictaphone <laughs> is going to play a role at mm. some point later in the novel. Mm. Time to wrap up part one of our conversation about the murder of Roger Ackroyd. I don't know about you, but I really enjoyed chatting about it. Yeah, it was great. Our next episode will feature part two of our conversation, so make sure you tune in for even more in-depth chat about the classic mystery story. For updates about the show, as well as reviews and general chat about crime fiction, make sure you check out my Instagram at crimefictioncasebook and give me a follow. For now, we'll be signing off, so it's bye from me. Bye from me as well. And make sure you join us next time on the Crime Fiction Casebook Podcast. listening to the crime fiction casebook podcast the episode was written produced and researched by bridget coulter and james wilson the theme music was also composed performed and recorded by bridget coulter and james wilson again please give me a follow at crime fiction casebook on instagram thanks again for listening and we hope you join us next time goodbye